Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We break with the usual format and turn things over to Dan for a deep dive on his favorite backup technology. That's right, it's Bacula. Then we've got the latest on the Yahoo hack and a few more reasons you should already be using ZFS. Then it's your feedback, a rambunctious roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode is streamed live on March 21st, 2017, and is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is our host, Dan. He's the admin, the organizer, and the explainer. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, Wes. Very Hello, nice Tom. to have you. How are you this week? I'm good. Anything new in your world? Over the weekend, I managed to split my Fruity configuration up into two different jails. So if we're not familiar, what is Fruity? Fruity is an old, now deprecated, probably (laughs) abandoned tool for managing a Nagios configuration. But it's still working for you. It still does exactly what right. I need. Yeah. So I mean, I and Nagios doesn't now. change that much. Yep. So, yep. yeah. And, and to do this, I actually had to go into the FreeBSD archives and pull out the port that I used to manage. And oh, now really? I have it set. So it's in my internal ports tree and, and you compiles can compile in for it. the stuff I want. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Well, we've got so. kind of a special show this week, don't we? We do. We're taking a departure from our previous 10 episodes. Is this this episode 311? Yeah, that's right. So in all our previous 10 episodes, we picked a news item and followed along with that. But this time, the whole first section of the show is just going to be about Bacula. Because who was it? Matt Yakel. Yakel? Yakel? Matt Yakel, yes. Let us know if that's wrong. Asked for a deep dive on Bacula. He'll write in and correct us, I'm sure. Yeah, and I mean, and that's something um, I think we're both pretty excited to, to explore on this program is the TechSnap audience appreciates the ability, you know, there's a lot of casual coverage in tech news, so it's really nice to be able to take the time and kind of deep dive on something, talk about the intricacies, maybe explain complex details. Uh, mm-hmm. I know I'm excited, so if you have other ideas, audience, on deep dives that you'd like to see on this program, please do let us know. So I think with that, should we just, uh, should we dive right in? I think so. Okay, excellent. So, Bacula. Bacula is a backup tool. And it it, it is a distributed backup tool. That's important. That, yes. In that all the components talk to all the other components over TCP IP, which can or cannot be over TLS. And I first started getting involved with Bacula in 2004. I I decided that I needed to start backing up stuff. This is about six years after I started playing with FreeBSD, and it was still only just at home. But I had looked at Amanda, and I hadn't heard of Bacula yet, so I started playing around with Amanda, and I was configuring the clients, and someone said, hey, you should look at Bacula. And this is someone on, I cannot remember who it was, but it was definitely on the, the FreeBSD channel on Undernet. 
And so I went and had a look at Bacula. And the thing that really impressed me about Bacula was the catalog. And the catalog for Bacula is kept in a database. And it's a list of all the files that were backed up, where they were backed up from, where they are now, and optional checksums of the file when it was read from disk. Now, that checksum is interesting because it means that when you read it back from the tape or the volume or whatever, we'll get into that later, you can verify that what you've read back is actually what you originally read. Right, without having to maintain your own list of checksums next year, right. copies or whatever. Or if right. you're not lucky enough, kind of um, can unify things if you're not lucky enough to be able to back up onto or have ZFS or other file systems deployed everywhere, you can still get a little bit of that benefit there. And so ZFS with it, its checksums and Bacula with its checksums, checksums are some of our favorite things. Yes, exactly. Now, so this catalog was, had a choice of MySQL or Postgres. I was just about to ask him. Yeah. Sorry, I'm wrong. It had MySQL or SQLite. Mm, now, yeah. don't use SQLite for Bacula if you're doing anything more than a few hundred files, a few thousand files, and especially don't do it if you have multi-user. If it's just you at home, nobody else is accessing the database or doing backups, you may be okay. But don't don't overdo it. So it, it had MySQL, which was not even then my favorite database. Mm -hmm. Even then I was using Postgres. And I can't remember when I started using Postgres, but I know it was before this. So the first thing I did with Bacula is I wrote a, a very simple Postgres backend for it. Oh, wow. Neat. But all that took was taking the MySQL backend and doing a lot of substitution calls for the equivalent uh, Postgres calls. And so that that was my major contribution to the Bacula project. And now I think most, I hope that most Bacula installations run on Postgres. I'd be sad if it was MySQL, mostly. Um, not sad, but sort of disappointed. Right, especially when it's, I mean, you know, if you, um, you're an expert in, in MySQL, that's what you know, you support a whole bunch of them. Okay, it makes sense. But if you're just a casual user who had to pick a database... You're gonna have, a, I think, you're gonna have a much better time if you choose Postgres and have, you know, more reliability. I sarcastically say, people that choose MySQL, I'm sorry for your loss. Yep, there we go. I think that's that's spot oh, on. Anyway, sorry. Now, the 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 way you configure Bacula at first sounds really weird. People get sort of a little bit upset when you're storing passwords and plain text and files. Oh, yeah, sure. And that's not as bad as it sounds because those passwords are actually secured with file level permissions. And if you do that accordingly, that's fine. And they're not actually passwords. Well, they are passwords. I think of them as shared secrets. Sure. Because when... For, I think we have to talk a little bit more about the different components. The main three components of Bacula are a the director. The director decides what gets run, when, and where. It will say, okay, this backup job needs to be done. It'll give it to a file daemon, and the file daemon runs on any server which needs to be backed up. 
Now I say server, but in effect, the file daemon runs on the client with respect to, to Bacula, it's the client. So at runtime, the director says, here's a backup. It's gonna run on that system and it's gonna back up these files. So it contacts that system, sends them the list of the files and says, back it up to this system over here. So the file daemon backs up the files, sends them to the other storage daemon and the storage daemon puts it away on the disks or the tapes as instructed. And then it sends a list of the files that were backed up to the catalog and that completes the cycle. Now, when the file daemon is configured, you tell it, here's a list of directors that are able to contact you and these are their passwords that they will contact you with. So basically it's setting up the daemon with the name of the director and the password it's going to present when it connects to you. Right, you're setting up those Whereas, trust relationships so that it knows yeah. only for requests yeah. that can identify with this. Yeah, start so basically you're telling the, the Bacula daemon, Bacula FD, uh, Bacula FD file daemon is, is what the FD is short for. So then over on the director, you have a client configuration which says these are all the clients that you have. And when you go to connect to this client, you present this password. Ah, so yes, the same right. password appears in two places, and people get confused by that. Think of it as being a shared secret between the director and the file daemon, and it's much easier to follow. It kind of strikes me as, um, you know, if you were going to do something more naive than use Bacula, you may end up setting setting up some sort of um, VPN or distributed um, SSH keys, and you end up doing a similar thing where you, you need to have trust between these components. Um, mm -hmm. So it makes sense that Bacula would need to do the same so that you can have this distributed architecture but maintain yep. security. Now, you, you can also do TLS with certificates and stuff like mm -hmm. that, but that's way beyond what we want <laughs> yeah, to talk, right, exactly. talk about now. Because I tried setting that up oh, late last week and I had trouble with it. So I No one ever off. wants to set up. But. I'll, I'll get back to it. It's only just in my home network, but I want to have it turned on. Now, with the, the corresponding configuration for the storage daemon is exactly the same. Over here in the director, you have a list of store, storage daemons that you can talk to. And then over on the storage daemon, you have the name of the director that can contact you and the password. And then over in the director, you have the list of storage daemons that you can contact and the password you use to connect to it. So the the name of the director is actually stored in its own file. So you say, my name is dandirector01. And then over here on the bacula.sg.conf, you say, uh, dandirector01 can contact me and I will pay attention to what they say if they supply this password. Now, those passwords in the configuration file can be anything you want. They can be anything you can put within quotes if you want to get fancy. You don't even have to use quotes if it's short enough. But people look at it and they say, this looks like an encrypted password to me. It's not. It's a plain text password with whatever characters you want in it. So that, that that's the ba basic sort of configuration of how a job gets started and it talks over here and it comes back. But when things really get interesting, it has to do with how the data is stored on disk. 
Now, people first think, well, is it tar? No, it's not tar. It doesn't use tar. Well, what is it then? Why, why isn't it tar? Well, it's CPIO, not tar. what is it? It's, yeah, nothing like that. It's its own format. Okay. It's openly documented, and it's all on the docs. But basically, the reason it does that is to be able to go in and get the file it needs and grab it back out easily. Tar was not suitable for this. Yes, right. I, I mean, it's wrong, but I mean, Tar was first was intended as a tape archiver yeah. type thing, not not necessarily a random access. And this was never something that I use. I was not around when the, this was done, so mm. I don't actually know. Now, so the hardest concept, or a very hard concept that people always encounter with Bacula, is the concept of pools. So, a pool is a collection of bacula volumes, all of which share similar qualities. So, imagine you have a pile of backup tapes sitting in a box, and you're going to say, okay, that's my Wednesday pool. So, everything that comes out of that box is going to be used on Wednesday and it's going to be kept for a week. But then you also have the concept of backing up to disk. But there's no physical tape that you can hold and say, this is a volume. So when you're backing up to disk, the volume is actually a file. And don't confuse that with volume management that is often used to describe space on disk. Don't think of it that way. Think of the back of a volume as a tape that is actually on disk instead of on tape. So, everything in a pool has similar attributes. So, what you do is you say, this is going to, my, going to be my full backup pool, and I'm going to keep everything in my full backup pool for three years. And every time you pull something out of that pool, it's going to be kept for three years. And basically, when you need to go and create a new volume, because on disk, you just create a new volume. On tape, you would insert a physical tape, and then it would get labeled yeah, right. and added to the catalog. And then that's a new volume. But when you create a volume, the pool definition contains the default values for all the attributes of that pool. So there can be lots of things the main thing for a pool is the length of time you're going to retain any information on that pool. Okay. There are other things like is if you're going to be copying things from one pool to another, what's the next pool it goes to, and when you're done with with this volume and you erase it, what pool does it go back into? And yeah, stuff I was like gonna that. I was going to ask how do volumes and pools relate? Um, yeah. In terms of of life cycles, as well as like, does one volume move between pools? Generally, no. Yeah, okay. A volume is almost always in the same pool, but you can copy a job. Between pools? Between pools, between storage devices, uh, between volumes. But generally, what what I use um, copy jobs for is I will back up to disk, and then I'll copy it to tape. Okay. And, and those, by nature, have to be two different pools that because they're on different media. Yeah, maybe you could if you could just do a quick hierarchy of um, storage yeah. devices, pools, and volumes. Yeah. Um, so, m 
most people think of backing up as backing up to tape. And there's no real difference to Bacula in terms of backing up to tape or backing up to disc. It's exactly the same as far as Bacula is concerned. So much so that there's actually a virtual disc volume manager. So basically, you can think of your disk drive as being a, a, a disk library. You know, you know how you have tape libraries with lots mm-hmm. of tapes in it and a tape robot and stuff like that? Yeah, pulls it out, sticks it in. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's a similar thing for, for backing up to disk. Um, only the robot doesn't really do anything except say, yep, there's a file. Go there ahead. it is. Go ahead. Right yeah. That. yeah. Um, so the, there's not so much a hierarchy as just Backler says, okay, the file's there. It doesn't care that it's on disk. It doesn't care that it's on tape. That's abstracted um, away. There, there is an abstraction layer even between Bacula and the OS tools that you call. So, uh, MT and MTX are often, uh, MTX is uh, for moving, manipulating a tape library. That's not actually invoked directly by Bacula, nor is MT, if I recall correctly. Usually there's a script called MTX Changer, and that's what's used because it allows you to do things like uh, uh, add in any little quirks that your tape drive may have. Uh, It's it's usually just a shell script with the commands in it, but... um, you tell Bacula this and invoke this shell script like this and use it in this fashion so that you can sort of abstract away any little things that are particular to your OS. Um, I know that I had to modify it when I went from one tape library to another for, for my needs because one tape library took a lot longer to load a tape than the other one did. So I had to add a sleep, I think it was 120. So after mounting a tape, sleep 120 seconds and then then proceed. Um, so we get into pools. We talked about storage daemons. Um, now the next most complex thing is retention periods. Mm, okay, and is that a property of the pool or larger than that? Because you, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's initially a property of the pool. But then it becomes a property of the volume once that's been created, right? In so yeah, once you create the volume, the value is copied from the pool definition and applied to the volume. That allows you to change the pool definition without affecting all existing volumes, unless you want to. Right, much like inheritance yeah. from the software world. Mm-hmm. So there are three levels of retention. There's volume retention, there's job retention, and there's file retention. And why do you have have three different levels of retention? Uh, mainly for database pruning. Mm. So if you're backing up 10 million files, every one of those files will have one entry in the table every time it's backed up. So if you have a year's worth of backups and 10% of those files have changed you're going to have 12 million to 18 million records. Right, that can get out of hand pretty quickly, I imagine. Yeah, but I don't like to prune my records. I like to keep them all. Why? 
because when it comes time to restore, you want to be able to pick one file out or several files out. And if you don't have the file level retention, if you don't have the file records in the catalog, you're going to get messed up by being able to pull that out. So I've, I've taken the decision that disk space is cheap and having a 32 gigabyte database when I'm backing up several, uh, let's say I've got 60 terabytes of backup, I'm not really worried about using 30 gig and trimming it down to 16 gig, especially given the advantages of having all that data around. It lets me know what was backed up when, where, and where it is now. So I'm keeping all that. But what you can do is you can actually prune that data down. You, you can say, just keep the file information for six weeks. And after that, I'm okay. I'll just restore the whole backup if I need it and then pick out the files I need. But I don't want to do that. So you've got file job and volume retention. I take the approach of setting my volume retention to a very large value, such as, to, oh, sorry, such as I set my file and job retention to a very large value, such as 10 years. I'm not going to keep a backup for 10 years. So what I then do is I set my volume retention according to how long I want to keep that individual backup. And as soon as any retention period is reached, any of the data on that volume is free to be wiped out. And that can sometimes bite, bite you. But so long as you take that approach, set your job and file retention to be high values, then you let your volume retention, which to me is logically sensible. Uh, I have data on this volume, on this tape, and I want to keep it for six months. So six months after the last time that volume was written to is the earliest time that Bacula can reuse that volume. And by reuse, you, you have to go through a, a, um, an algorithm called recycling. And already I can tell that some people are going to be thinking, holy shit, this is so complex. Who would want to use Bacula? And initially, you're right. Right. There's a lot of features which makes it complex, but it's actually very straightforward to get started with. And it, it seems and, like maybe one of those those systems, I, I know dealing with some similar systems where you have, you know, you have a few abstractions that you need to understand before you can really use the tool at all. You know, it's not just like, yeah, okay, I R-synced over here and made a tar file or used hard links or whatever. Um, but it, it seems like if you embrace that, then instead of having to reinvent a bunch of these kinds of things, having to roll your own distributed system and cron jobs, et cetera, et cetera, like you, here you've got an entire framework. So because you have these flexible abstractions, then within the framework, you can tie them together. You can set up um, whatever kind of retentions. Um, you can add you know, different clients across your whole, your whole network, whatever you need, and it'll all play nicely together. And I suggest we can take a break now and after we come back, I'll talk about scalability and why this approach is very, very scalable. All right. Well, then that makes it time for our first sponsor this week. That's DigitalOcean. You know, if you're interested in Bacula, you want to get started playing with it, maybe you're not ready to run it or you don't have a spare machine on your network, my friends, you know where you can go? 
head right over to DigitalOcean.com. There you'll find the simplest cloud hosting provider. They're dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server for whatever you want to do. Prices start at just $5 a month. And if you use our promo code, yeah, that's right, we've got a promo code. It's SnapOcean. One word, SnapOcean. You use that, you get a $10 credit. So if you're using that simple $5 a month, and you know what? That comes with that comes with a 20 gig SSD. Plus, you can use DigitalOcean's block storage if you need more. That's more than enough to get started backing up your key files. And at $5 a month, you know, if you want one, you know, maybe you want one in New York and then you want another one over in London just to make sure that, you know, hey, nuclear apocalypse in America. I want my data to be safe after that. That's where DigitalOcean's got you covered. They've got data center locations all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt, and I'm sure more coming soon. Plus, they have a very intuitive interface, super simple, and it's backed by their incredible API. That's right. First-class API support. They use it themselves. There's a ton of community tools that are built on it. You really can't go wrong. They've got tons of Linux distributions you know and love, CoreOS, Ubuntu, Debian, you know, pretty much whatever you need. Plus, they've got FreeBSD support. So, They've got you covered. It's real virtualization. None of that open VZ stuff. Nothing fake. No shared kernel. You get real hardware level virtualization. It's all KVM, 40 gigabit E, right to the hypervisor. That's why DigitalOcean is one of my favorite places. I need a quick project. I want to run some tests. I want to compile something. You can start with the $5 a month, but if you look over to pricing, you'll see there's a lot of nice things here. They've got both monthly and hourly. I like the hourly. I mean, for a lot of things, you just want an extra machine for a few hours. Right here, that three cents an hour box, that's a sweet spot. Two cores, two gigs of memory. That's all plenty for like 90% of jobs you want. 40 gig disk, three terabytes of transfer a month. Come on, that's crazy. That's why you should head over to digitalocean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. Get yourself that $10 credit and start exploring the awesome products DigitalOcean has today. Alrighty, now we're back. Let's talk more about Bacula. Yes. Okay. So we already went through that. Um, the ba the bacula director will contact the the file daemon, tell it here's a list of files to back up, and here's the storage daemon you're going to back it up to. Right. The storage and daemon then backs that dumps that stuff onto disk or tape. Then it sends a bunch of stuff back to the the director, which then dumps it into the catalog. That now, was one thing I saw I, that I think is important to make clear that I saw in a lot of diagrams is um, you don't the director doesn't need to be with the storage daemon at all, right? That, those no, can be entirely separate no. machines. Um, they can be separate data centers, separate machines. Uh, often, as a starting point, you'll put the director, the storage daemon, and the catalog all in the all same in the machine same thing. Ju just to keep it simple. Right. But no. Generally, you you would put the storage daemon on one machine, mm -hmm. big NAS. Yeah, over right. There. Connected to all the disks or yeah. whatever. Yeah, or an R six ten connected yep. to a tape library. Nice, beautiful, beautiful. And then you can always put the director on its own little VM because it doesn't have to be very powerful. Um, your storage daemon just needs a big pipe. Mm -hmm. And then all the clients run the, the file daemon. And then the clients run Bacula FD, which in itself isn't very heavy. It's relatively lightweight. 
which right. it just needs to, re- to accept requests point. and then spit yep. files back out, right? So, Bacula, the director, can run as a non-privileged user. It, mm-hmm. it can run as Bacula, Bacula. Right. The storage daemon can run as a non-privileged user, user just Bacula, Bacula. And sometimes you might want to add Bacula into the operator group because it'll be con- contacting tape drives and right. stuff like that. You want them to have d- device permissions or that sort yep. of thing. But Bacula FD has to run as root if you're going to back up root-only readable files or files that are not readable by Bacula Bacula, for example. So that's the, that's the only proviso is right. that Bacula FD has to run as root generally. Which is maybe why, partly why it's important that it, you know, that it not be a huge thing. It needs to be minimal yep. so you can have a nice security surface. Now, I also believe you can f- configure it read only, so it doesn't actually can't actually restore can. anything. Okay, nice. Yeah, that might that might assure some people. And you can also configure it so that hey, listen, you can't restore anything to these areas. Mm-hmm. Keep sensitive areas in. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, um, c- can you run it as a non-root user if you're just backing up files? It, it can touch. Yep. Okay. Yep. Nice. If you wanted to do that, you could. There's nothing stopping you from run, running it as non-root. Excellent. It'll let you know if you can, if it can't read a particular right. file. Excellent. Now, uh, you can also encrypt on the server you're backing up. So Bacula FD can do the encryption for you. Uh, you can provide it only with the public key and keep the private key somewhere else mm-hmm. secure so that you can't ever do any restores unless... You supply the key, right? Um, but yeah, that that that's the main way that people use it in terms of uh, the director and the storage daemon both running as non-privileged users, and the uh, file daemon running as a privileged user. So, when it comes to scalability, generally you have one file daemon that can only be contacted by one director. So you only set, you only supply one set of credentials. And you say, this is the only person, this is the only director that's allowed to contact you. Ignore all others. But you don't have to restrict yourself to that. You, you can have multiple directors contacting many different file daemons and say, okay, you back up to here, you back up to there. And a, a given file daemon could run two backup jobs a day, one to back up to one location and one to back up to another. And for some people, this is perfectly acceptable. It's all internal bandwidth. They're not worried about it. And it doesn't put a high load, so they do it that way. Whereas what I do is I have one file daemon make one backup job, and then I copy that backup job to wherever I want. And with 10 gig links nowadays, it's doesn't take very long. That's right. Not not too big of a deal. Nine point six megabits a second. So, if you wind up having thousands and thousands of of file daemons, probably the easiest way for you to do it is to break them up alphabetically or or geographically, and have each one of them running from one backular director. Um, you can even separate the catalogs out. I know someone oh, really? that runs okay. a different catalog for every 
every uh, client, every file daemon. So is it paired between like a director and a catalog? Like a director always speaks to one catalog? No. Okay. Wow. You you can set up multiple catalog resources within a director. Within a director. Wow. Yeah. As many as you want. You could, there is nothing preventing you from having a different catalog for every client that you're backing up, which logistically sort of makes sense. You only back up that one mm-hmm. client, so you keep all their data in that one. And that, that's their little data container and information yeah. about it. Interesting. Wow. Now, I'm quite sure about that. Someone will correct me. Yeah, exactly. They'll try yeah. it and be disappointed that it didn't work. And the one of the beauties of this is that you can also impose... Oh, I forget the term. You can impose restrictions so that ACLs. Hmm. You can you can impose restrictions so that people can only restore their own jobs. Right. So basically, you can give someone access to the back of the console and say, "Okay, go ahead. You can run your own restore jobs." Right. That lets and them. The ACLs, they can back things up, but they can't. They can't touch anyone else's data, regardless of if it's encrypted yep. or not. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Because you can even you can even gather information from people, even if you can't read read the data. Right. So you can get really advanced and have multiple directors, each contacting different file daemons or multiple file daemons, each backing up to this the same storage daemon. Or you can actually get multiple storage daemons and you can say, okay, all of these clients back up to that one and all these clients back up to that one. That's perfectly acceptable as well. You can divide it up however you want. Now, one of the things that I always do is when I'm backing up servers that are out on the internet, I make sure that I have a VPN connection to them. That just makes it a little bit easier to secure it in terms of you don't have to worry so much about TLS because it's all secured by the VPN. But it also eliminates any NAT problems. You don't have to do any network address translation. Yeah, I often find that that you know if you if it's easy enough to just set up another layer of network where every you know it's first class, everyone can just talk to each other. There's no other trickery they have to do. It's it's a lot simpler, and you're like, okay, yes, it's secured, it's encrypted, great. Uh, and you got to realize that a lot of people will have the director. And the storage daemon sitting behind a firewall, right? So the file daemon can't connect to it anyway because it's natted. Yeah, yeah, you'll that you'll just be dropped. So there's no way for these for the director to contact the file daemon, but there is a way to have the file daemon contact. You can have the storage daemon contact the file daemon because there's no way for the file daemon to to leak in behind the firewall. So the file daemon can reach out through the firewall to to the client to say, hey, listen, I'm ready for you to back up. Here's your connection. Uh, Okay, interesting. So it's nice that way, but I prefer a cleaner approach of just having a VPN. Right, then you have full visibility both ways. And yeah, 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 definitely. Now, that... That's that's not so difficult. Um, the other concept that people are sort of shocked by is that what there's no cron jobs. Right, Backlit doesn't run off cron jobs. What? How do I schedule things? How do I control it? Yep, you don't do it that way. Bacula has its own scheduler. 
you may think that's ridiculous. Why doesn't it just have a back, uh, have a cron job? And that's because even though you're scheduled to run at 8 a.m., there may be other jobs in front of you. Jobs may have started at 7 a.m. and they're still running at 8 a.m. and you don't get to run until the other jobs finish. Now, that is actually configurable. So you can say, no, only one run one job at a time. Or you can say, no, 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 this system can handle four concurrent backup jobs. But that storage daemon can only do two backup jobs at once. So it's the lower setting that, that rules. So even though you're running five backup jobs on the client, you can only back up one of them at a time. So there's all that configuration settings that you can have. Uh, there's also priorities you can assign for jobs. So at any given time, only jobs of a given priority get to start. You can have multiple priority jobs queued. And this part I forget. I can't remember whether it's you can't start a higher priority job or you have to wait for all lower priority jobs to finish first. That'll be something that someone reads up on and lets me know. Um, I know that all my regular backup jobs start at priority 100, and then my copy-to-tape jobs are priority 400, and then my dump catalog to disk is priority 410. So when it comes to backup um, copy-to-tape, priority 400, I'll know that all the copy to disk jobs are done. So yeah, a higher a higher number priority, which is actually lower priority, will run after all the other uh, lower numbered jobs finish. So I see. that way you can, you can make sure that the, the things that are actually important um, are happening first or yes. get priority. Yeah. Yep. It's a scheduling way. Yeah. See, that seems like kind of exactly the thing where you know, like cron jobs work really well when you're like, all right, well, once a day. You know, take a snapshot and send it over to the server. But if you need more than that, if you need this kind of thing, then here you are inventing your own thing. Now you're writing scripts to manage your cron yep. files. Or, but when you have a nice framework that's been battle tested already, that's that saves you a lot of time. So, do you um, have you used Bacula with configuration management, Ansible, or other things? I use Ansible for the initial configuration, for setting setting up the first um, uh, the, the configuration of the files mm -hmm. because they, they don't change very often. Right. Like assigning in the passwords and set, setting it all up. And yeah. actually on the tape library, the, the R610 is configured so that every time I run um, Ansible, it'll just make sure that the configuration is the same. So yeah, oh, I nice. have used yeah. that. Yeah, now, it seems like um, with the configuration um, being being text files and other things, it seems like it would work very well with that kind of thing. If you already have a distributed infrastructure configured that way, then just drop it in. Now, I know some people that configure their, that create their main Bacula configuration from a database. They've got some sort of script running oh, that pulls it all out and generates the um We'll write out all the config files yeah. and... Because Bacula Dirge, because because the director knows everything, it knows everything. Everything you do not hide anything from the director. The configuration for the director can get huge. If you have a couple of hundred clients, you have this yep. file that's 
Right. And so if you start, like you have a central database keeping all of the passwords, yeah. all of that stuff, then a couple, a couple loops later and you've got your config file. With configuration files, you can include other configuration files. Okay. So what I do is I put all the jobs and everything pertaining to one client, I put in one job, like client-r610. That has all the configuration for that client in it. It'll have their, the definition of the client. It'll have the definition of the jobs that it backs up. Any um, non-standard file sets. Uh, we didn't talk about file sets, did we? No, we so, have not. A file set is a list of the files to back up. So a job can only have one file set, but you can run multiple jobs. Right, okay. And file sets have various attributes, such as do you do a checksum? What files do you exclude? What wildcard type things do you include? So I actually have, do you remember a few weeks ago, a chap was asking about how do I back up my jails? Yes. And I showed him a script about how you can get a list of the things to, to back up, and it'll actually go through and snapshot all the jails and then allow you to back up the snapshots and it'll go through and delete all those snapshots. Totally. That can be a file set. A file set definition is very flexible. It can just be a straight list of, of directories that you want to back up or a list of files. Or it can be a script that you run that spits out a list of files, or you can include stuff from other uh, other files. It it is just amazing in its flexibility. But anyway, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, this image here, I'm, I'm putting on the screen. It it just yes. has a kind of hierarchy and kind of talks about that. I like the way it describes a job. Uh, it says a job right. is a definition of one file set from a single client backed up according to a schedule to a pool of tape fi slash files on a storage device. I'm glad you have that. I think that's a, a nice hierarchy. And I can see what you mean. Like if you can just, you know, from whatever other system, you're like, well, this is the, these are the files that are important to me based on criteria X. Then there you go. That's my file set. Yep. The, the job runs, backs those files up, stick into the pool. I can see the beauty mm -hmm. of that. Yep. If you bring that diagram back up, I'll talk a little bit about that because there's a few interesting things in there. Now, you can see the schedule at the top right. The schedule does things like says, okay, we're going to do a full backup on the first Sunday of every month at 8 a.m. On every other Saturday, we're going to do a differential. On all other days, we're going to do incrementals. And people often wonder, what's the difference between an incremental backup and a differential backup? A full backup basically is every single file. Uh, an incremental is all the files that have changed since the last backup. So if you change two files on Monday and you did a full backup on Sunday, then those two files will be backed up during the incremental backup. Now, a differential backup says what files have changed since the last differential backup. Interesting. So basically, on the first Sunday, what you will wind up doing is backing up all the files that have changed since the last full backup. 
since there is no previous differential, it goes back to the first full. But then on Tuesday, sorry, on Monday, when you run an incremental again, it'll only back up everything since the last backup, which happens to be a differential. What this does is it makes the second, third, and fourth week's incrementals much smaller. So instead of on the last day of the month, you're backing up all the files that have changed all month. You're really only backing up all the files that have changed since yesterday. Interesting. No, that, that kind of makes sense. It's almost... Um... Yeah, it's like it's it's almost like two ways to kind of think about the same thing that allow you to to have finer control on how much has changed and how much of that change is reflected in your new copy. So, when it comes time to restore, you'll take to do a full restore. You take your full backup, right? You take the differential backup, whichever one that was, and then you take all the incremental backups which have occurred since that last differential. And that will get you back to where you were. That should be your your complete little state in time there. Oh, interesting. Sort of. Sort of. You'll also get any files back that you deleted. Interesting. And some people say, well, that's not what I had on Tuesday. I deleted those files on Monday. Why are they here? Mm -hmm. It says, because they're in the backup. And the way you get around that with Bacula is you have something called accurate backups and this is sort of along the lines of here's a list of files currently on the system you send it off to the back end the back end says okay I've got those files take those files put it over here over here over here and it sort of makes an accurate backup based on what you had so that you can then when you do a restore it'll restore only the files that you had I haven't used it but people swear by it they say it's wonderful Right. No, Bacula, I mean the accurate backups. That makes sense. I mean, it seems kind of like the uh, the outcome or client focused side of it, um, where the other version is really just, you know, uh, almost like a Git style system where it's like we just want to make it very difficult to lose information. The whole point of this is that you get to keep your files. You know, it's not a you can't add files back, so it's not a big deal if like you need to restore and then prune some files or etc. Or here you go. Here's a built in solution. Now. We, we talked very briefly about recycling volumes. Right. Say you've hit the retention period and you've got backups in there and you might as well just use that tape again. But Bacula is very obstinate. It will not overwrite a backup unless it absolutely has to. Mm. If it can use another tape, it'll keep using another tape. So if you have 60 tapes in a pool and... They're all available. It'll write through all those 60 tapes, even though you've said, just keep those tapes for a month. You'll wind up with five years of tapes unless you impose some restrictions. And those restrictions are, are placed on the pool definition. Um, it's kind of hard to think, think of, of just filling up all the tapes. But if you tell Bacula there's 60 tapes and it can get access to the tapes, it'll fill them all up. I think it's more useful to think of uh, recycling in terms of disk space. Mm -hmm. Say you've got a two terabyte space that you want to fill up with backups. Well, 
what what you can do is you can say, okay, each volume is only going to be five gigabytes, and I'm going to allow for I'm going to be bad on the math, six hundred volumes. Okay. Now, why would you make the the volume size so low? Because sometimes your incre- incremental backups are only a few files. Mm-hmm. And if you wind up reusing or appending to old volumes, they won't they are not eligible for recycling until the last write reaches the retention period. I see. So you may have the the first time you added something to that volume, it may have been in January. The last time you added to it is in June. Now you have to it's wait again. Si- it's not six months from January. It's six months from June. Right, because, because that... the newest data in there is six... Right, yeah. and it's, its backup validity is dependent on that volume. Right. Yeah. So typically what I do is I have... I've taken the approach now of, of only using one volume for one backup. Okay, interesting, yeah. So once that volume's been backed up, the retention period that applies to that backup is the soonest time. It's never going to be changed, right? Over recycle, right? It gets sort of complicated when you're using the same volume for multiple backups, but it's perfectly perfectly legitimate to do so. If you if you have a um, an LTO system, I, I'm I wind up putting multiple backup jobs onto that, mm-hmm. but a physical tape is different from a file on disk. Um, yeah, very much so. I'm going to save this tape. I'm going to put it in a safe, undisclosed location for some period of time. Uh, whereas the space on disk, I'm just going to exactly. reuse that because I can just erase that right. quickly. Yeah. Very different. Um, it seems kind of geared. Um, I could see that it being a gotcha for you know people doing backups at home or smaller spaces. But I can definitely see the advantage of that strategy by default in the enterprise space. Um, you know where. Yeah. You know, you have a whole bunch of tapes or other drives, you have space, and you really just want to make sure that, mm-hmm. you know, oh, we messed up that customer's account. We need to roll back to whatever was valid six yep. months ago. Do it. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So what you can do to manage your disk space, because you don't want it to use all your disk right. space. First, you want to have some monitoring on there to monitor the disk space. But Baculet will not monitor your disk space for you. You will run out of space unless you impose some limits on it. Now, some people think that's a bug. I don't. I don't think that the backup system should be monitoring no, it, your disk space. That seems like a valid separation of concerns. And again, in that, like, you know, if you're using the systems for production usage or whatever, monitoring has, you should have already checked that box. So it's not a big concern. So, to keep the math simple, because I'm doing this in my head. Yep. Let's say you have 100 gig to do your backups in. And you've decided that each volume is going to be 5 gig in size. The maximum amount of size you have is 20 volumes. Because 5 times 20 winds up being 100. So what you do is you set your pool constraints to say maximum volume size is 5 gig. And my maximum number of volumes is 20 because that does the math very evenly. But then you might add other restrictions to say, okay, only use a given volume once, which means you're going to run out of volumes very quickly because you're not using up the full 5 gig. 
So somehow you get in there and you wind up adjusting the number of volume, uh, the number of max volumes, and just sort of tweak it a little bit so it fits. Um, that sounds very abstract and not very positive uh, or very very distinct, but it's sort of a magic that 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 you learn to do in in, in terms of managing your disk space. Either that, or just buy terabytes and terabytes and just keep an eye on it. Hey, yeah, right. That's always a, that's always a solution. Throw more uh, old spinning disks at it. Yep. Um, I'm sort of wondering which part to hit next. Would it be a good time for a break? I think so. Okay. I think that's a fine idea. All right. Well. Let's take this opportunity to thank our second sponsor this evening. If you've been inspired, you, you've, already, you've already visited our first sponsor. You're like, okay, well, my backup needs now exceed what I'm willing to trust to the cloud. I need to have a couple offsite backups. Maybe I'm already co-load. We've got the sponsor for you. That's our friends over at IX Systems. Who are IX Systems? They're the hardware server provider you wish you'd found out about years ago. If you've been buying from these big box stores, you're going online, you're shopping, you're guessing about your needs. I really need this new server, but what configuration? Is this the right motherboard? How much RAM am I going to need to really meet my demands over the next fiscal term? Stop it. Just stop it. You're wasting your time. Go to IX Systems. They have an awesome team of talented sales engineers ready to set you up with a brand new server configured exactly like you need running an awesome Intel processor state-of-the-art. They have awesome agreements with all their providers. They work with them closely, so if you need any kind of specialty hardware, you need a very specific processor, you need the right motherboard that fits in the right case, or the exact performance, the number of IOPS, whatever, IX has a team of people just ready to work with you. And and that's what you get with IX systems when you work with them. Instead of you being like, your, your deal with one of those big server providers, right? You're saying, hey, I gave you some money. You give me a server. And then that's it, right? Maybe you get a support contract about the, the hardware in the server. IX wants to help you meet your business goals. They want to make sure that the server that you get is going to do the job that you need it to do. Uh, that's a huge difference over their competitors. So go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That lets them know that we sent you. There you'll also get an awesome guide to buying hardware for open source systems. So IX has a long history with open source. They configure a huge number of servers to run open source systems and closed source systems, but they understand the value of open source software, what that brings to the community, and and even better than that, they make open source software. Uh, so you might have seen this week, they've just ran, launched the next version of their very popular FreeNAS software. That's something we talk about a lot about on the show. It's an awesome solution if you need a NAS at your small office or at home or for your business. Now there is the new FreeNAS Corral an open source solution for building hyper-converged infrastructures. It's a brand new version. It's basically FreeNAS version 10, pretty much completely redone. It's awesome. You should definitely go check it out. Before you do, go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Let them know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program, and then get your, go get yourself an exciting new IX system today. Have you tried that new FreeNAS Corral yet? No, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't yet either, busy. but I'm excited to. It looked, it looked pretty slick. There's a couple of questions. Well, at least one question in the roundup about that. Oh, excellent. Sorry, the feedback. Feedback. We'll get to that soon. Okay, so in the interim, now, did you decide what's next in our deep dive? Well, I was looking through a, 
a, a slide deck I have from a 2013 talk. Um, and I was reminded that backups are really, really boring. <laughs> and I gave a three-hour tutorial on it. And fortunately, it was hands-on because otherwise people start falling asleep because it's a really dry topic. Right. I mean, and that's why no one wants to do their backups, right? Because you're just like, oh, I already have the data. Why do I care? And I don't think anyone ever got famous writing backup software. No. How many backup software authors can you name? Zero. Let's just go with zero. Yep. So. Well, I guess you, not, you've contributed not, to Bacula. So I know I your contributed. name. Yeah. I, I, I contributed. I didn't write. So, yeah, there, there's not a lot of incentive. Mm -hmm. So. And yet it's one of those things, right? It's like, um, it's like plumbing, maybe, where it's like, it's not glorious. You're not going to get famous doing it, but uh, our society depends on it. Yep. Now, one of the things that I found when I was looking through all the hot tips that I had is that, yes, Bacula FD can run in read-only mode, and it's a minus K option on the command line. Um, now, some of the other things that I found is that, um, ooh, let me find here, where was it? There. Um, when, when you're first setting up Bacula, just go slow, go easy, set up one client, get it working, make sure that it works Try some test restores because you know what? When I was first doing a large backup on Bacula to tape, the restore didn't match the backup and we couldn't figure out why. And I talked to the Bacula project and they said, you know, it really looks like your tape drive isn't recording everything that we're sending to it. So I started talking to some people about this on the FreeBSD mailing list, and we found a bug in the SCSI driver where when you hit the end of tape, it would say, yep, I got that. Oh, by the way, you're at end of tape. But what it should have done is said, oh, you're at end of tape. I didn't get that. So basically, it was just tossing away some of the data when it got to the yeah, end of tape. Yeah, right. Like, oh, yeah, everything succeeded. Soft warning. I don't know how many people that bet over yeah. the years, but I mean that's kind of a, it reminds me of people who you know are using ZFS and and find underlying problems with their disk or other systems or problems with SAS controllers or whatever because hey we hadn't checked before but now we've got now problems. we can see the data's wrong yeah so when you put data integrity kind of at that as your first mm -hmm. principle mm -hmm. you get all mm -hmm. these all these good benefits aside um. One of the things I've said in the past about backups is that they're worthless. It's the restores that are priceless. Yeah, exactly. And Bacula has a lot of interesting options for restoring. Now, I want to talk about the different tools that Bacula has. There's the Bacula console, B console, and that's your main command line interface with, with the director. Um, it has something called B-tape which you use to test your tape drive to make sure that it operates properly with Bacula. It allows you to, to determine some configuration settings that you want to tell Bacula. You know, sometimes the tape drive needs two backspaces at an end of file or end of tape, something like that. Um, there's tools like BWild, which will allow you to test the wildcards that you have in your file set to make sure that it's pulling all the information uh, from disk that you need to back up. There's a tool called B-Extract, 
which helps you pull stuff off your tape drive if you don't have Bacula installed. So it's a command line um, untar, for example. There's something called bscan, which lets you look at a tape and find out what's on it if, say, for some reason you have this tape and it doesn't match anything in your catalog, you can just do a B-scan. Um, it's also useful if you happen to lose your catalog. And I swear, losing your catalog is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. All the more reason for using Postgres for your catalog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, a pro tip. Yeah. Every day... Dump your Bacula database, your catalog, to a text file, uncompressed. Then copy it, rsync it away to two or three other locations, along with all your .conf files. That will allow you to recover from a complete hardware crash of your database server and your Bacula server and still get back to somewhere where you can do a restore. Right, so if you have all of your configuration files and you have your catalog, mm -hmm. and you still obviously have all the um, storage devices that you need to have. Yeah. Yes. You can bootstrap an entire system as long as you've got your data and the config, like, mm -hmm. yep. you're back up and running. And even if you've lost your catalog, you can actually use bscan to recreate your catalog by oh, okay. reading every single one of your... If you read volume. everything, you can then everything. build up. Yeah. That will take ages. Ugh. That's Just hoping why you I never do have to everything do. I can to avoid a catalog. Right. Loss. And hopefully, if you're already running Bacula, that's the spirit you have. And so you yep. use some of that skill to be like, yeah, okay, I'm not yep. using the catalog. That oh I I've I've tried to help people who have lost Had their catalog. And you do not want to run B scan. I it it's only the type of stuff you wish upon your worst enemies because it is just horrible. Just waiting for it. it it's a great tool. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. Right. But, oh, it's such a painful process, scanning and everything. Because uh, you have to remember to turn off pruning. Mm, right. Because you're reading something in from 10 months ago and your retention period is only six months. So it gets pruned right away automatically. Just done. If you have automatic pruning on it. Oh, and then you're just hosed. Don't don't lose your catalogs, right? So I mean, even if you're using the SQLite database, just like go copy that elsewhere, back it up. Yep. Um, now, how do you back up your catalog? Yeah, right. I mean, if you're not going to use Bacula to back it up, uh, well, some people back up the raw database files, the files right on disk. Oh yes, right. And I don't like doing that. I, I trust PG dump and I get a plain text file and I back it up. In addition, I use uh, Tarsnap to back up my catalog file every day because it's the most important thing to Bacula apart from the backups. And so it's in Tarsnap, it's on several servers, it's on a disk, it's on no exaggeration, hundreds of tapes lying around here. So don't lose your catalog. Now, I think we're reaching almost the point of where the only things to talk about are the more complex things like uh, 
how how to make it work with ZFS and stuff like that. Oh yes, right. There's nothing magical about using ZFS and Bacula. It just it just works because Bacula backs up to disk. It doesn't care what the disk is. In fact, that's part of the reason why Bacula does not use tar, I think, or why it doesn't use dump, dump and restore, the basic commands. Bacula tries to be operating system agnostic, so there's nothing preventing you from backing up a Windows system and restoring it to an Ubuntu system, or vice versa. Because it doesn't, it doesn't operate at the file system level. It operates at the disk level. So anything you back up is just a file. It's it's not a particular operating, right. uh, sorry, a particular file system or anything like that. It seems like it can be a nice unifier, especially in a diverse environment, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to be like, okay, well, in six months mm-hmm. we've paved all of yep. our systems. You can just be like, nope, today install install the file daemon, and mm-hmm. we're backing up. Yep. Now. Every job has a concept of a run before or run after script. So if you're backing up your database in the run before script, you have a little shell script. And what it does is it runs PG dump and creates your file on disk. Oh. And then in your run after script, you go in and you can delete that file from disk. Right. But I choose not to delete that file because that's one more copy that yes. I can have lying around just in case <laughs> I need it. Yeah, why not, right? Until you're at Don't. Don't delete your backups. Keep it as long as you can. Uh, I keep it so long that... Do, do you remember ages ago about me talking about how I have a, um, a jail called DB Clone and its sole job is to, ta- is to r-sync copies of databases from various places and yes. then run through a test script to load each one of those databases up in, into a database right. instance to make sure that the loads work. Make sure that well, all of your PG restores yep. and, yeah. Yep. That's why you keep the extra copy on disk is so that I can rsync it away and run this daily test. Right. And I mean, for your catalog, how much is that database dump? In terms I don't of, know. I don't know. I imagine um, it's not I prohibitive. I believe... I can't get there from here. None of the none of the systems I have running right now will get into my network. Hey, that's probably Be- a good thing. Because the, the, this laptop is set up only to do Skype. The, this is my work laptop, and that's not going to let me do anything. Right. So, yeah. And this laptop, I'm sorry to say that this laptop died. Oh, no. My condolences. That's terrible. I love that's a That's a beautiful looking cover there. And kudos to anyone listening or watching that can provide in feedback the name of this bird, the species. I'm curious now. I have family members who are uh, who are quite quite the Audubon people, but I am not. How long is yeah. that? Uh, how long has that laptop been around? It's too bad that it's died. That that. Oh, uh, I don't know. It's probably six years old. It may not be dead. When when the screen comes up, it doesn't really do nice screeny things. Um, you know, and like it only started acting up when I plugged in the big monitor to it earlier on today. So, but here's a question then: Is it backed up? Yep, it's backed up to uh, Apple Time Capsule. 
and tabacula. Nice. So awesome. You can see the time capsule. That white thing right up there? Mm. That's the time capsule. Nice. It's sitting yeah. right there. Do you have a bacula? Is the R630? That's your storage daemon, right? Do you have your director in-house? Oh, uh, yes. The director is in one of these boxes down here. It runs in its own jail. Okay, yep. um, And then the box above that is this, the main storage daemon. And then the R610 right up by the uh, keyboard, uh, KVM. Uh, that's attached to the tape library, which is at the bottom. So, uh, for cross-platform, you already mentioned Windows. Do they have a Mac client as well? Yes. My laptop gets backed up. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, there you go. There's an entry on my blog. Uh, I install it from Mac ports. Okay, nice. Yeah. And it just runs all the time. That's awesome. And unfortunately, I've sometimes backed up my laptop over my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, you get that data bill and you're like, ooh. That did not Oops. do my data bill very well. Yes. But, um, but, at least you have the backup, right? Yes. In some circumstances, that very well may be worth it. I, I should set it up so it only backs up when it's local. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know how to differentiate local and remote, given it's always on the VPN. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a little more tricky as a proposition. Yeah. Um, but what you can do is during a run before job, do a ping. And if the ping times are greater than such and such, you know it's not local, it's remote, and you, you can error out of the run before job oh, and the job won't run. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's an interesting... Um, so are there any more hooks before run before and run after? Like there's run on error, run after error, or run if there's an error, run this, or something mm. like that. There's a whole lot of stuff. Um, there's also the concept of duplicate jobs, Say for some reason it's been waiting for a tape all weekend long because it ran out of space. Oh, yes. And you get in on Monday. You now have a backlog of several jobs, some of which are duplicate. So I have a job that runs every two hours. It backs up my email. Mm -hmm. But if there's already an email job queued, the newly queued job just gets canceled automatically. And... That's proven very useful because before I added that in, if I was running a full backup and things got slowed down, come Monday morning, I would have 10 or 15 backup jobs sitting there waiting because right. it runs every two hours. And then it just, <laughs> then it's sitting there and it runs and you're like, okay, well, great. I got the first backup down. Then everything starts up again. It starts running just yep. to, you know, not yep. do anything. Well, imagine having two full backups run because the first one, Right. For some reason, it took so long. Yes, that, exactly. That doesn't often happen, but it could. Okay, so we've talked a lot about Bacula. What do you see? I'm curious what you see as Bacula's strength against some of its competitors, right? Maybe things like um, mm -hmm. Duplicity or uh, what are some of the other ones? BUP or is, is Borg one of them? Think, things that maybe are less less distributed, um, maybe simpler to set, begin with, uh, but but not as proven as Bacula. Most of those tools, I don't know. Yeah. 
I mean, I guess so I you can't need to I can't them. comment on them directly. Um, I I really like how there are different components and they run at different privilege levels. Right. I like how I can decide, oh, database server is getting a little bit big. I'm going to move it to another box. And all you do is you change the configuration and nobody cares. Right. Because they're already talking to each other over TCP IP. They don't care that it's no longer at local host and that it's now across the room or across... As long the as the network's there, it's, it's exactly the, the same. There. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love the catalog. The catalog for me was the reason why I did not deploy Amanda and why I de deployed Bacula. Um, Tell us I, more. Well, the catalog by virtue of the fact, the catalog by nature has a, has a record of every file and where it's backed up, which means that if you want to find out where a file is or even if a file is duplicated across various systems, you can find that out. You can look it up. I think it's also integral to how it does um, virtual backups because it has a list of what it's already backed up and it has a, a checksum of that file. It knows for a fact that the file that it's about to back up again is already in the storage daemon, so it doesn't back it up because it's already there. Um, What's a virtual backup? Uh, virtual backup? is one where you always have a full available. It's slightly different from an accurate backup. Okay. But the virtual backup means that you always have a full sitting there waiting to go, waiting to restore. So that you don't have to do that interpolation of differentials and So you don't have to do the, the full diff and the incremental. It always just has one backup. Right. So if you're really like, hey, we need to be able to restore on a moment's notice or be very sure of that. Interesting. So the virtual... And the accurate, I think, can be combined. I've never used either. Mm -hmm. I've always just, <coughs> pardon. I've always just been. <clears throat> I've always, <coughs> pardon. That's okay. We all have frogs in our throat, especially when we're talking so much about something. So, what did I say? It's. I've always just preferred to go with. Um, just the regular Full incrementer and differential. Right. I haven't had a need to go with it yet. Yeah. Um, and I like the fact that Bacula does everything it can. It's very obstinate, it's very stubborn, and it will not overwrite a backup unless it's explicitly told that yes, it's okay to write overwrite this backup. And it has no other choice. It can write to nowhere else. You have said no, 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 no. Okay, I'm going to recycle this one because it's reached the retention period. And the thing to keep in mind is that retention period may have been reached a year ago. Right. Uh, and yeah. it still hasn't overwritten it because it doesn't have to. It doesn't, it, it's not eager in that sense, right? It's yeah. not like, yeah. oh, hey. Retention uh, period, gone. Just delete everything right now, right it's now. It's gone. Yeah, no. You can't have. No, Which I, I suppose that. in a space constrained environment you might want, but. When things when backups are your priority, that's yeah. So they're I can see that as a they're it, very cautious, right? It has a, it has a philosophy behind it, a, mm -hmm. a way of doing things that jives well with your with your the way that you'd like to operate, and it seems like it jives well with 
a lot of of operations and when you you know you really want to place the data and the backup as what's important now one of the things i guess i can speak for is the fact that it just runs all the time it runs and runs and runs and i never get any notice i never take any notice that it has run or not run because everything is I, I put all the the backup job messages into a into a folder that I never see, and I only get reports of jobs that failed. And it might be three or four days before I go in and and, and open up B console and get a list of all the jobs that have run in the past three or four days. But generally, I don't pay any attention to it, and it just that quiet just runs background. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Which is what you want in a backup system. Now, granted, I do have a Nagios check that verifies that the catalog backup, which runs at the end of all the other jobs, is sitting there and it's of a certain age. Okay, yeah. What is um, that? Can you go into just like a brief implementation of, of what does that, how does oh, that check work? Uh, the, the Nagios check, it's just a shell script that runs on the system. Mm -hmm. uh, it knows to look in a particular location for a file named such and such, and it makes sure that its current uh, C time or M time. I see. It's yes. either C or M time, I'm not sure. Creation or modification time is not more than 20, uh, I think I get it at about 36 hours. Okay. So. You know, usually on, on the first Sundays, which is the full backup, that 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 alarm triggers. But I I just check and I see yeah the backup hasn't finished yet. Right. Because right now my full backups wind up being a terabyte, about a terabyte. Wow. Yeah. Which which isn't doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a whole LTO four tape. Yeah, I mean that's that's um, that's a reasonable amount of data, especially if they're just your own you know your own personal backups. That's mm -hmm. yep. that's pretty good. And the other thing to keep in mind is don't try and do compression. Let ZFS do the compression for you. It'll be a lot better at okay. it. Okay, yeah. And by not compressing the files, you're also able to take advantage of rsync and tarsnap, which do a lot better on raw text than they do on compressed files. And it also means that when you go to read the files and copy it over to another system, you're reading the compressed data and ZFS will automatically decompress it for you and you don't have to do any additional decompression. Nice. Yes, right. That makes sense. And that way you have, you kind of have your, your closest to your original source along the whole way until it's actually written, written to your storage medium. Yep. Nice. Um, can't think of anything else. Okay. How so, are we doing on time? Are we... Let's see now. It since is, we started recording. Yeah, I think we've because I think we've gone about an hour. About well, that seems to be enough for this part then. Yeah, I mean this is this is Bacula deep dive number one. So you know if we want more information, if there's some feedback that prompts more specific questions, specific setups, maybe we can do a demo or something. That's all in the table. So please let us yep. know what you thought of this one. That'll shape what we yep. do in the future. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Well. I think that takes makes it time for our final sponsor this evening. What do you think? I think so. That's okay, a very let's good do idea. It. Yeah, very so, good idea. You were talking about how you accidentally backed up over your phone on some plans. That can get you in major trouble. Not with our sponsor, and our sponsor that's Ting. 
Ting is mobile that makes sense. It's a no BS mobile service provider that really wants to focus on keeping things simple. So there are some plans where, okay, I set up tethering. I got my little extra tethering data allowance. Oh no, I did my full backup. That's a full terabyte that I pushed. I mean, hopefully not that, but even a couple gigs, suddenly you're in overage territory. Who knows in your contract what they've decided that they're going to charge you for when you go over your data budget. If you're, if you're a Tink customer, none of that applies to you. Ting is pay for what you use. No contract, no early termination fee. It's all upfront. So whatever the data rate is for your regular data, that's what it is going over because there is no plan. You have no maximum. You just pay for what you use. Your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. That's what's important here. There's no bundling. You don't have to pay extra for tethering or voicemail or three-way calling like Ting gets that you just want to pay a bill, keep it simple. And it starts at only $6 a month. That's right. Single line, $6 a month. I mean, there's some like taxes and fees that'll depend on where you live. Can't do anything about that. But $6 a month, then just head on over to their rates page. That is techsnap.ting.com slash rates. And you'll see they have this awesome table. You can just kind of click through, describe what you need. Let's say, yeah, okay, I got a family of three. We used, we used a little bit of minutes, like no text messages, because come on, it's 2017. And then a couple gigs of data. Ting makes it super plain. You just click that all together. They'll show you exactly what you pay. That's $15 per line. I mean, for what we're doing here, that's $47 a month. That's more than you'll pay maybe for like a one-person plan on some plans. That's why we think you should check out Ting today. TechSnap.Ting.com. Some other things, Ting really appreciates cord cutters. They understand that you live a digital first life. They have a whole great bunch of great app picks, blog posts, highlighting apps that you can use with their service. Um, and with that $6 a month, one line, $6 a month, it can be a game changer if you do need to do like limited backups over a remote connection. You want to make sure that no matter what, you always have connectivity or a backdoor to your, uh, you know, to your home system, to your work system. Ting is perfect for that. So don't waste any more time. Don't be on one of those character carriers that really locks you in. Just go to techsnap.ting.com. That'll get you a $25 service credit or if you want to go pick up a brand new device, you can go to their store. Every, you know, it's all carrier unlocked, no bullshit. You just get straight phones. They work wherever. They don't get in the way of your updates. The 25 service credit fee will apply there as well. So techsnap.ting.com, head there today. And thank you, Ting, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to this week's feedback. That's the section of the show where we take time to talk about the things that you've sent us. We love it when the audience sends us suggestions, criticisms, topics to cover, or just questions. Uh, this week we've got an interesting lineup of items. We'll see. Uh, sometimes it's uh, very much like Stump the Chumps. Sometimes it's, hey Dan, what do you know about Bacula? And sometimes it's anywhere in between. First up this week, we've got a letter from Tim K., He's asking us about open source remote monitoring and management recommendations. So Tim writes, I run a small managed IT services shop. And since we opened, we have been using Kaseya 
I'm not sure if that's right. I'm not familiar with that product. I've looked it up a little bit. Neither um, am I. Looks like a proprietary um, monitoring suite that mm-hmm. runs on Windows and and other systems. Uh, they use this to monitor, remotely control, and deploy software to our clients' endpoints, window which are Windows and Mac machines, as well as monitor antivirus logs and trigger alerts. Kaseya offers much more than the features listed above, but what we use is pretty basic in terms of the functionality. Kaseya charges us about $66 per year at endpoint for both its remote agent, monitoring, and antivirus, which is a centrally managed Kaspersky. The core components are good, and we have managed a little over 180 endpoints with this software as a service service. Eh, look at that. Uh, but since day one, we have been having trouble with a constantly changing and non-responsive billing and support department. So much, in fact, that we're looking at replacing it altogether. Uh, I would like your input. What remote management tools would you suggest? I know Zabbix and Nagios will be the first to come to mind, but they focus more on monitoring and alerting and fall short on both remotely controlling, deploying software, and running cleanup scripts. Worth noting, not all of our clients are in domain environments. We're open to using multiple tools to get the job done, but some open source implementation that can support the following would be ideal. So what he's looking for is remote control on demand, software deployment, running scripts and automation, active monitoring and alerts of the system and AV logs, example being if AV can't detect a virus or is disabled, uh, send an e-alert email, they're currently in the process of testing other commercial alternatives such as Enable and some other SolarWinds offerings, um, but they'd be open to our recommendations on commercial tools as well. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Love the show. Tell Chris and Alan I miss them. Well, thank you very much for writing, Tim. Uh, this is an interesting question. Uh, congrats on, on running the successful business. I think that's neat. Um, what do you have to, to say to this one? I have no idea. None whatsoever. Um, I'm glad that they they mentioned, you know, this isn't about monitoring. This is more about remote control and management. And it sounds like all their, they're managing mostly Windows boxes, I'm guessing, because they mention uh, domain environments. So I'm just not familiar with that area. And I hope that someone in the audience is and... They write in to us and let us know. Yeah. Please. My Windows admin days are thankfully behind me, so I'm not current either. I was trying to look up some things before the show. Unfortunately, I feel like you'll end up, at least at least in the tools I'm familiar with, you will probably end up with a stack. If you don't go with one of these commercial ones, there may be something in the open source that I'm not aware of, but you'll probably end up with um, a much larger number of composable pieces Right, like you can already do things where if you have antivirus logs or other things, and you can export them from the host or stream them from the host, that makes it pretty easy to use um, industry tan- standard tools like Logstash, Elasticsearch, other things to to set up alerting and monitoring on that. In terms of software deployment, running scripts, that's where it gets a little bit more unsure for me, um, especially if you want a tool that can mitigate the differences between platforms. If you're comfortable writing PowerShell scripts or Apple Shell scripts or Bash scripts that run on your OSX clients and PowerShell scripts that run on your Windows clients, then there seems like there's a lot of options. Um, yeah. But if you need something that where you can have a GUI that you say like, hey, take this MSI, put it on this host, that I'm not sure about, unfortunately. Cross-platform management is not trivial. Yes. 
So, I, you know, you could also look at some things like I know Ansible has a little bit of Windows support. Um, I think some of the other configuration management ones do, so that may be able to fill the gap. But, but I don't think that's what... I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know. The, the problem is that there's a lot of things here jumbled together, which can be very nice for the administrator, um, but are often not where open source yeah. technologies focus on. And instead are, you know, we just do this one little piece. Hey, if you want to tie that into your thing, that's great. Um, so audience, hey, we're throwing this one out to you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for Tim. Uh, otherwise, we're a bit stumped. So yep. thank you very much, Tim. We appreciate you writing in. On to our next feedback item. So we talked about this very briefly earlier in the show. Freenas has just come out with a new version, uh, and this bit of feedback has a question. Uh, SM Ash writes, Hey, gents. Thanks for stepping up and manning the tech snap ship. Hey, someone has to. Uh, I have a Freenas question that I think a lot of our audience would benefit from. As you may have heard, IX Systems has recently released Freenas 10 Corral, and it's a complete rewrite from Freenas 9.10. I have multiple 9.10 systems running at home and at work. Does anyone know how long the Freenas 9.10 version will be supported? I just recently purchased a Freenas Mini XL, and then Coral, Corral came out. I need to plan for the implementation of the new Freenas Mini XL hardware. I want the new Shiny, but I understand it's my job to be smart, and waiting for all the Corral bugs to be worked out might be the best call. I've searched high and low, and have not found a single end-of-life, end-of-support timeline for 9.10. I was hoping that someone might be able to summon ZFS King Jude and see if he has the inside scoop from IX. While I know this question is very specific, having listened to Alan and Chris for years, Freenas is just too important not to ask. Thank you, Jens, for your time and for continuing the TechSnap train. Woo-woo. All right. Uh, I like that a lot. Woo-woo, indeed. I have no special inside knowledge. Um, what about you? My recommendation would be to reach out to IX Systems um, on well, community support forums. I would get on the free, forums yeah. and ask there. I would imagine just given their past history that you'll get a very reasonable support lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly long enough to wait for you know the first couple of main like maintenance releases on this new version to come out and to help build the, some trust. They're not going to abandon their existing customers. Yeah. Also, that kind of highlights one of the benefits of, you know, free NASA's open source software. So if you do run into things, if there does have a problem, I imagine there will still be a hefty FreeNAS 9 community around for quite some time. Yeah. Anything else you'd like I, to add? I don't think you're going to get stuck. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm hopeful that, you know, this isn't like a lot of um, proprietary solutions or other things where, hey, the new version's out, you've got three months to upgrade, otherwise you're host. Yeah. I, I don't see that. That won't happen. Okay, well then, that brings us to our final bit of feedback this week. Zach is writing to us about file syncing. Hey guys, really like the direction you are taking with the show. Oh, thank you, Zach. I've been back and forth in my head about file syncing. I've tried a couple of things, Nextcloud, Caddy Server, SparkleShare, GlusterFS, and CFile. I think I'm familiar with all those, but not, not Caddy Server. Um, and I've just not been super happy with the results. Either it was confusing to set up, or inexplicably broke, or didn't exactly do what I wanted. What I would like is to keep a set of files in sync on my LAN, as well as on a VM with a dynamic IP address outside of my LAN. 
So he's got a, he's got some LAN systems and then at least one system outside of his LAN that he'd like the same files to be in sync across. While expose, so while doing that, I'd like to expose a minimum number of ports on my ISP router. I would also like to have an offsite backup of these files. For the files I want to share, I think a simple NFS mount provided by my FreeBSD server will do the trick. I don't have any sensitive information that people in my house can't see, and don't worry about anyone visiting. While I'm at work, what's the simple solution? Uh, should I just set up an rsync daemon? As long as I don't use HTTP as the method to connect to the home file server, I think that would work to just have the SSH port open, which I can protect with something like fail to ban. I could use the same idea for backups as well, I believe. Is this the simplest solution? Are there better options? What do you think about his plan? Don't put NFS on the internet. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's probably a good. Yeah, don't yeah. don't do that. Um, he, I'm not quite sure of his use case when he's at work, but I would say why not create a VPN and then remotely mount the stuff from, say, a Samba share. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, VBN seems like it could be um, a very viable option, you know, just, yeah. again, pave down those barriers, make it all seem like one simple network, and then whatever things that you would use on your LAN suddenly mostly become applicable outside your LAN as well. And then all you have to, you know, you may have a dynamic address at home, but you can always use dynamic DNS yep. to keep that constant and then just connect from home. It's what I do here. Sorry, connect from work. It's what I do when I'm out on the road. Yep. I connect home. Um, and then maybe off of Sambashir, you can actually get access to the files there. I'm not sure how big these files are or what they're used for. Yeah, some more information about exactly what the files are, uh, You know, what kind of retentions you need, what kind of availability do you need, because... If you do if go with do, something like a VPN in Samba, then yeah. if you lose the network connectivity, yeah. you're out. If it's just if it's just a small, um, just a small documents and stuff like that. Failing that, you can always still do a VPN and then do an rsync over the VPN. Right. Um, the other things I can think of that weren't in your list. Um, there's Union FS. Uh, as well as SyncThing, which I've used personally to mm -hmm. just sync some files around, and then LibreVault, which does the same thing and is a yep. little bit newer. So maybe one of those fills the gaps as well in those solutions, and those usually have NAT busting and other things built in, but also would work well on a VPN as well. And you may not need an rsync daemon. Yeah. You may be able to just connect in and run rsync sure. on, yeah, on, on demand. You know, if you've got all the... Um, mm. SSH things set up, then... <clears throat> but if someone's already doing this, please write in and let us know. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point of this segment. We really appreciate it. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Tw not Twitter, what am I saying? On Twitter, on the subreddit, um, or just send it to the contact email address. And that brings us to this week's roundup, where we've got a packed roundup of awesome items we've seen across the internet. We don't have time to do a deep dive into everything, but I think those are all stories worth talking about. They're definitely interesting, and they may show up again on a future episode for a deep dive. So, first up this week, how Discord indexes billions of messages. Oh, billions with a B, that's a big number. 
that's a lot. And it looks like this is a kind of big operation. Tell us more, Dan. It, it's huge. Uh, in fact, this very article was posted to me on Friday. Maybe it was Monday uh, by one of my coworkers. He, he posted this in. And yeah, it, it would be very interesting to go through. I haven't had time to read it all, but I saw mention of Elasticsearch and uh, uh, Logstash, but I, th I, I think Logstash has been um, deprecated now and it, it's now Feed Drive or something. I can't remember what, but they're not, they're not using that. I just did a quick scan for it. But yeah, um, basically what they say is they've decided that instant indexing is not required, which makes sense because you nobody's really interested in something that was posted two seconds ago. They're usually interested in something that was posted sometime recently about something. So that that's how that works. Um, so yeah, I, I want to read all this because they do say it's, linearly scalable. Yeah, that's a phrase that uh, you know makes you perk up a little like, hey, mm -hmm. ooh, mm -hmm. as big as you want, huh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's always neat to see these kinds of, um, you know, people spend a long time tuning production systems, getting things to work, proving that they're scalable, um, and especially when they're made of open source or other components and all the magic sauce. I mean, those components are important, but the magic sauce ends up being like, how do you orchestrate these things together? How do you get them to build in a reliable, scalable way? And it's really neat to see successful people doing it and willing to share that. Yes. And I'm just about to be involved with more Elasticsearch stuff. So this oh, may really? be very relevant to my interests. Totally. Yeah. I've, uh, I've used it a bit myself and, and have been impressed and I'm excited to work with it more as well. What, are you, what will you be doing? Uh, I can't tell you. Oh, even better. Excellent. All right, well then, moving on to the next roundup item, which we can talk about. Yes. So, PayPal phishing certificates are far more prevalent than previously thought. This is an interesting one um, that maybe talks about a little bit of the downsides of easy-to-obtain TLS certificates. I'm curious what your take was. Um... I read about it. I'm not surprised that people are using Let's Encrypt for this, but nobody should be hating on Let, Let's Encrypt for this because really you've got to watch where you're going and what you're doing. And yeah, you may be at a site that looks like PayPal, but you really should be looking to see that it is PayPal that you're at. Don't, don't, don't get fished. Yeah. Basically, what people are doing is having a domain, uh, some like phishing.com, and then getting a certificate for www.paypal.com.phishing.com and hope that people don't notice that, yeah, it says paypal.com there, but it says a whole lot of other stuff over there. And there are some people who are saying, no, really, you shouldn't be issuing certificates for anything with PayPal in the name. You really shouldn't be doing that at all. But I'm sort of on the fence here. I'm 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 not convinced that it's let's encrypts. Right, and I um, mean, I would want to be able to, you know, just as a. Well, 
I can't think of a use case for PayPal dot whatever domain I owned dot com, but it does seem like it's my right as a domain administrator owning that domain name to have that subdomain and have a certificate for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of a double-edged sword there. Um, but how far do you then go? How do you decide who warrants protection right, like this? Right, exactly. Is it just PayPal? Well, you, you're going to protect Stripe as well? Does that mean no one can have Stripe yeah. in a host name? Is it now? all trademark names? Is it just yeah. trademark names in the yeah. U.S.? Like, what yeah. is that? Yeah. yeah. And I think this does, oh. it does talk a little bit, too, about, um, at least with Let's Encrypt, you know, they're, they're pretty transparent with their organization, so we can at least audit, like, how many PayPal domains did they do, and you can kind of mm-hmm. see, we can at least do this kind of analytics and trending. Well, if you can do these analytics, you can also start blocking them. Right, exactly, right. People can use these to add to block lists, browsers can do it and start notifying, hey, this might be a fishy domain, etc. And I still think, even with these small downsides, the ubiquity of having you know easy to use encryption on the internet far outweighs this cost. I hope I hope it does. I haven't started using Let's Encrypt, but it's on my list of things I want to do. Oh, nice! Hey, maybe we can do a deep dive later. Okay. Yep. So, next up is kind of connected, not really, but in the same domain, Firefox has gotten a complaint, kind of an amusing complaint for labeling an unencrypted login page as insecure. This is something we've seen. Um, Chrome has already started warning about these things and has kind of an aggressive agenda on their own to pursue this. So I was interested to see it from the Firefox side as well. Well, in this case, it's a Firefox uh, feature that when it sees something that looks like a password fo- password field, it says basically, you know, you don't really want to log in here because uh, it's not secure and it's in plain text. In this case, it was Oil and Gas International and they had an email and password that they would type in and it's very clearly not HTTPS and so the browser, quite correctly, as instructed, pops that up. Now, the owner... contacted uh, Firefox and said, how dare you do this? We have our own security system. We've been doing this for 15 years. We've never been breached. And, well, participants of Reddit started talking about it and they claimed that there is an SQL injection and then all of a sudden the database disappeared. And, well, I went and looked at the website and there's nothing there that relates to what it originally was. It looks like it's under construction totally. So I don't really know if this is a real website or this is all fake or what. But now it just shows a domain squatting when you go there. So I have no idea. Interesting. I had not tried to go there yet. Huh. Yeah. So basically... The, the the people who ran this website seem, if all of this is true, the people that ran the website seem to be unaware of the nature of the message and why it was important. And if it is true, well, it seems that their website is no longer there. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and anyway, it's, um, it's nice to see this trend uh, 
a lot of users do not have the acumen to be able to tell, like, especially sometimes where you'll have um, some some page with mixed security levels even, where like, hey, the main part isn't, but this part's HTTPS, or the reverse, or none of it is, and those are just going to be clear text. Yep. Don't type your password in that box. Yep. Uh, but how is the layman to know? So the browser's taking this step is nice to see. Mm-hmm. Yep. So don't fight it, just use Let's Encrypt or whatever else, embrace encryption, it's here to stay. Yep. Okay, next up. Man jailed indefinitely for refusing to decrypt hard drives has lost his appeal. Now, the charges in this case relate relate to child pornography or alleged child, child pornography. And while the charges are atrocious, I feel that there's a very important legal aspect here. And I can understand why his lawyers are backing him when he says that, no, it's basically what the um, court is saying is that you have to supply your password. You have to unlock these drives. And although it seems to be that this is a very serious charge and a very, sorry, it is a very serious charge, but I don't see how this can't apply to everyone everywhere when it comes to the police or, or the court wanting your cell phone unlocked or your hard drive at home unlocked. It, it, I hate using the term, but it's the thin edge of the wedge. Yes, yeah, no, exactly. Um, they note that the Supreme Court has never ruled on a forced decryption issue. A federal appeals court has um, in a 2012 case, but that order was not enforced. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting legal ground going forward. But I, I definitely agree with you. Um, it does seem like it's another one of those issues where it's like our our morals have not, and our sensibilities have not necessarily caught up with what the technology is. So, the it also talks about the contempt of court order was obtained by authorities citing the 1789 All Writs yes. Act. Now, that I have a feeling that's rather outdated and has nothing to do whatsoever with computers. It's, it's a hunch, but I bet you it doesn't. No, yes, exactly. Um, and this has come up before in similar cases. Uh, and, and exactly of that case of that, again, that we just haven't adapted our society and the laws that govern it yep. to how we use this modern technology and how it's actually changed our day-to-day lives. So the EFF, the Electronic Frontier uh, Foundation, said compelled decryption is inherently testimonial because it compels a suspect to use the contents of their mind to translate unintelligible evidence into a form that can be used against them. The Fifth Amendment provides an absolute protection against self-incriminating compelled decryption. Whereas, I remember reading here uh, earlier on, they say, no, 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 we're not, they don't have to give us a password. They just have to give us the laptop in an unencrypted form. So they're sort of saying, no, we're not, we're not forcing them to divulge the contents of their mind. Well, yes, you are. Because unless they do that, you're not going to get your unencrypted laptop. Right, exactly. 
I mean, if you already had the password written down somewhere, then you could have, you know, you could have searched that with a warrant or, or anything else. Yes. And and yes. obviously you don't if you're here. Right. It's a very delicate legal matter. Yes, exactly. And I think it's it's one of those ones, again, where it's like, there's tons of these cases where like we may not we may not like mm-hmm. the defendant. We may not think that this you know if if committed these crimes are heinous, but it, can we have this precedent of that you must decrypt your drives and that there can be no secrets and that you can't have? The 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 FBI very carefully chose exactly. a terrorist case to push that they they wouldn't have pushed it on they wouldn't have pushed it on say someone suspected of sending a, a nasty letter to someone. Yeah, right, exactly. You, you, you need that sympathy. You want it to, to, to seem important. But that's where it's especially important to kind of cut away that and get to the core civil liberties and, and that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to something a little bit different in the roundup. Something we talked about before. So we've recently talked about the shattered attack um, that researchers mm-hmm. recently talked about with... Yes discovering SHA-1 collisions, and then we covered how SHA-1 is used in various services, but especially in Git. Uh, So this roundup item is GitHub talking about how they now have SHA-1 collision detection. I think that's kind of interesting. Now, one of the things we... When I first read read the, the headline on this, I thought there was a collision detected. But I think a better headline would have been SHA-1 collision detection added to GitHub. Yes, I agree with that. So It was a little bit confusing. Yes. So, yeah, I went in here reading, oh, someone's managed to upload one, have they? Oh, no, they haven't. Well, fine. Um, Basically, in our previous, in our initial discussion about the SHA-1 collision, um, we concluded that Git will handle a collection uh, a collision just fine um, it defaults taking the oldest one first or um, we actually got uh, a quote from is it Linus that does this saying that basically it's not gonna it's not gonna affect anything yes. but then some people are saying oh no it's gonna be terrible it's gonna be terrible I don't think based on what I've read I don't think it's going to be a big deal yeah, but, I, I saw but, some work. There's already some work in Git to support alternative um, hash algorithms as well. So yep. uh, it seems like we're we're on the road where it won't be a major problem before there's there's remedy. It would have been nice for them to have that work done already. some years ago. Yes, it but, would. Um, definitely. Yep. But I think also this roundup item is just kind of a good overview. If you missed that coverage or you want um, a little bit more in-depth discussion of it, the GitHub article does a good job explaining how... SHA-1 is used in Git, what are the security implications, and that kind of thing. So check it out. Okay, next up in the roundup, how I store my ones and zeros, ZFS, and a bargain HP microserver equals joy. I've I've never been to this blog before. I haven't either. So it's over at Maki blog, which is mako.org.uk. What are they talking about? Basically, they're saying, given the commodity hardware is rather cheap and that ZFS is rather ingenious, you can store this data in there and 
be pretty confident that it's going to be there when you go back and look at it again. He actually talks about a little bit of hardware called the Pro, Proliant microserver. You, you can buy them for about 250 in the UK, 250 uh, yeah, pounds, and they give you a 110 rebate. So that's pretty impressive. He notes that but, his is much dustier, so that may happen to you in practice. But it comes with 2 gig of RAM, and I'm... Yeah, I would bump that up. Yeah, definitely. I, I would bump that up. And basically, it's quiet. You can add other hard drives into it, and you can run ZFS. Uh, he's r running... Um, um, a lot of commenters point out you really should be using ECC. You'll be fine without it. You'd be better with it, but you'll be fine without it. And they talks about he's running with uh, Ubuntu, and basically he's having a good time and he loves it. I think that's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's nice to see this. You know, it kind of can come from the hey, maybe you haven't played with ZFS before. If you haven't set up your own NAS at home, you don't know what stuff to buy, you don't want to just buy a free NAS, I mean, I think that's a great option, but if you want to start playing with these things, this is a good uh, good starting place. There's a ton of more in-depth things, but this can be a good article that kind of justifies, like, yes, this will actually meet your yes. needs. Yes, it is. Okay, so now we're a little bit more in your home turf on this next item. We talked about it very briefly on LUP. Uh, I figured we'd, we should mention it here, too. And we mentioned it. We mentioned the major article last year, last week. Yes, we did. Um, and again, I found this this uh, main title misleading. Yeah. So this is a main title of a simple command allows the CIA to commandeer 318 models of Cisco switches. So first off, full disclosure: Cisco is my employer but I have no knowledge whatsoever about any of this stuff. I don't work in this area. So basically, Cisco says that more than 300 models of switches has a critical vulnerability that allows the CAA to use a command. So basically, they've analyzed the contents of the, the documents that came out uh, from, Wiki, was it WikiLeaks? Yes. Yes. Vault 7. Yeah. yeah. So they've gone through it, and they, they've discovered what the problem is, and they're admitting to what they found. So it's in at least 316 switchers. Allows remote attackers to execute code that runs with the elevated privileges. Uh, there's an advisory issued on Friday, and the bug is in the Cisco Cluster Management Protocol, CMP, which allows a Telnet protocol to deliver signals and commands on internal networks. And it stems from a failure to restrict Telnet options to local communications and the incorrect processing of malformed CMP-only Telnet options. So, yeah, this is a big deal. You know, one thing I will say as someone who does not work for Cisco, um, they seem to do a really good job of owning up to these kinds of things and being forthright with their customer base and trying to protect their customer base from exactly this kind of um, espionage. Which makes me have all the more confidence in their devices. At the bottom of the article, you can see the full list of the CISO switches. Have a look and see if it's there. Um, 
And I don't know. There are no workarounds that address this. There are no workarounds that address this vulnerability. It did say the vulnerability was only active when buggy devices were configured to accept incoming Telnet connections. So disable Telnet, you're fine. <laughs> that's um, almost always good advice, I yeah. think. And, and that's what it, that's what it says right here. It eliminates the threat if you disable Telnet, and Cisco has provided instructions for disabling Telnet. Excellent. And if you're not willing to dis disable Telnet, and I'm not sure why you wouldn't, you can lower the risk of exploits by using an access control list to restrict the devices that are permitted to send and receive Telnet commands. Nice. That seems like um, a pretty standard practice, too, if you're going to be exposing mm -hmm. these things to an unsecured yep. network. Yep. All right, excellent. Okay, so this next article, it's kind of an interesting one. Tell us more about it. Well, I started reading this this afternoon when um, it got posted by someone at work. And I found it very interesting to go back here and read some of the things that this guy did in order to hack in and how it eventually led to the Yahoo re revelation that came out, well, was it just late last week? Um, basically millions and millions of records stolen from Yahoo. But the things that this guy did and how patient he was and how thorough he was at pulling stuff together and how he infiltrated someone's web server that was sitting in his kitchen running on a Mac, which he found through a LinkedIn profile because the, his LinkedIn profile happened to lead to this web server at home. Wow. Which contained vulnerabilities. If you're going to host your own web server, keep it up to date. I yes. hope mine are, now that I've <laughs> said that. Yeah, right. Just make and sure just not to show your IP address on, uh, on the stream. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it, as bad as the stuff is that he's done, you have to admire the skill and the, and the thoroughness and it, reading it from a dis defensive point of view, it says, yep, shouldn't have done that. Yep, shouldn't have had that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but it's all a bunch of unrelated things that linked together lead to an exploit. Yes, exactly, right? It's, it's, all, it's all about being able to chain those together. Mm -hmm. Once you've broken through a little bit of trust, then that mm -hmm. next layer is all the more trusting. Uh, it just yep. keeps getting easier. It's a very good read. Anyone involved in any type of systems administration should read this thoroughly, I believe. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think it also highlights how, you know, even talented, well-meaning administrators can make these kinds of small mistakes that just cascade uh -huh. and can lead uh -huh. to a huge failure. Yep. So in that same vein, still talking about Yahoo, let's turn to our friend Krebs. Yep. We are a bunch of Krebs lovers here. That's right. Um, I... I figured this should be included because he goes into a little more detail about the four men accused of hacking into a half billion Yahoo email accounts um, and how one of the guys worked for the Russian Federal Security Service, oh, FSB. Ooh. And oh, th this, again, is a very interesting read. I found the first one more interesting to read, but this one ha has just a different collection of details. And yeah. Read both. Enjoy. Yes, I think that's good. It's, that's very good advice. Okay, so it's been a packed roundup. It's filled with tons of stuff. 
But they all must come to an end, and that brings us to the final item. I like this one a lot. Uh, yeah, I'm I saw this sure earlier in the week. I laughed out loud. So, what do you guys think? A computer user sees in a security warning box. Mirador LTD on Twitter showed a slide here adapted from Jonathan Nightingale. I think this captures it just beautifully. Yep. Let's see if I can bump that up here. Awesome. So if you can't see that box there, basically a big alert pops up. Something happened and you need to click OK to get on with yep. things. Yep. Exactly. Uh, I love that. I think it really does highlight, right? Like you're trying to get something done on your computer. Oh, no. What's this box? How do I get out of it? Just keep clicking. Oh, yeah. That box comes up every time you just click here. You say yes, accept. It all goes away, right? Especially, I mean, one of the things I can always think about, oh, yeah, whatever, yes, the the name on this host, it doesn't match the certificate. Yeah. I know, I know. What I hate is the boxes that pop up as you're typing, and then you hit enter just as the box arrives. What was that? <laughs> yeah, what did, I, what did I just agree to? I know. Oh, well. <sighs> all right. Uh, well, with that lighter note, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get everyone too upset this week, so... I think we should end it there. That'll be the TechSnap program. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to our wonderful audience? Nope. Keep having fun. Ooh, yes. I like that a lot. All right. Well, then that wraps up this week's episode. This has been TechSnap episode 311, live streamed on March 21st, 2017. If you'd like to see more of this program, or, you know, there's like a ton of other awesome programs on this network, go to JB... Oh, what am I saying? Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. That's where you'll find everything... Our archive, the previous version, Linux Action Show, Linux Unplugged, Unfiltered. There's like pretty much a show for anything you're into. So go check that out. There's also the calendar. We did this episode live, so you can be here too. We have an awesome IRC room. You can chat there or find out all the information about where to connect, blah, blah, blah. Do that. Go there live. Check it out. You can also suggest titles if you're here live. It's a really fun experience. If you'd like to hear more of us, talk to us, give us feedback. There is a submission form on the website or... I'm at West Payne on Twitter. Dan is at TechSnap underscore Dan. And we'll see you next week. Yeah.